0: Welcome to Grassroots Health. My name is Tim Jordan, and I'm the host of this podcast. I welcome you. Thanks for listening. If you care about health, yours or other people's, then this podcast is for you. It's distributed monthly on the first Monday of each month. Best of all, it's free. You can find it wherever you get your podcast. Grassroots Health is sponsored by the 1795 Group. Check us out at 1795group.com. Thanks again for joining us today. Enjoy the podcast. Welcome to episode number 14 of Grassroots Health. My name is Tim Jordan, and I'm your host. Happy October 2023, everyone. You know, October was my dad's favorite month. He just loved... Autumn. His love for the fall probably stems from his childhood spent in the hills. We call the mountains in the north. Spent in the hills of eastern Kentucky. And I'm sure that he saw some beautiful autumns there. Although my dad died in June of 2017, I vividly remember him telling me that he loved the fall. He loved the colors, the sound of the leaves crunching under his feet, the cooler temperatures. And even he said October had a certain smell. Do you like October? I do. It also didn't hurt that his birthday was in October. I mean, October 24th to be exact, so he probably liked October because of that. And I don't think he liked raking all those leaves that fell down from the trees and hauling them to the curb. I know that I don't. Anyway, happy birthday month, Dad. I have a distinct feeling that you're really enjoying where you are right now. Let me tell you about a few things that have recently happened or are happening in the month of October 2023 for the 1795 group. First of all, I want to publicly thank Zoe Atkinson from Houston, Texas, and Shelby Harrison from Menor, Ohio. These two young women entered over 420 names, email addresses, and sent our first email newsletter out to 420 people. So to ensure that you get the next one, if you didn't get this one, and it's probably going to happen in maybe late January, sometime in February 24, please go to our website and sign up. It takes maybe five seconds. All we need is your first name and your email address. And in return for those five seconds of your time, I've decided to give you something worth $5. That's a good deal. So sign up today at the 1795group.com. Second, We just completed our fourth virtual workshop on Sunday evening, September 24th. This workshop was entitled Grants 201 and dealt with how not to make the same mistakes that others have made when writing grants. Just don't do it. I want to say thanks to the 34 of you from all over the United States who attended our workshop and made it special. Thank you. Third, the 1795 group now has a formal internship program. We also have a coordinator of student learning. His name is Tyrone Lason. More than 75 students from around the country applied to work with us for 2024. Plus, we even had one student from Russia apply. Who knew? So if you'd like to know more about this internship program, please visit and I'll give you the hyperlink here. It's HTTPS colon two forward slashes 1795group.com forward slash internship forward slash. So just go to 1795group.com and look for intern. Fourth and last, I want you to know that the United States has a major societal problem. It has more than one, actually. This one, though, involves us. Only one in three U.S. adults has completed advanced care planning. One in three, about 33%. My own research shows that. So what in the world is advanced care planning? What are we talking about? So advanced care planning is for any adult at any age. Everyone should do it. I mean everyone. If you're over age 21, you should have this done. It means that you discuss and prepare future decisions about your medical care. Also, you select who would speak for you if you become seriously ill or unable to communicate your own wishes. And then many people choose to take the next step, which we recommend, put those things in writing, put your wishes in writing and your choice of person in writing called your agent and complete these legal documents that are called advanced directives. So we're gonna be a part of the solution of the societal problem. By October 2nd, 2023, we'll have two courses available on our 1795 website. One course for the public and the other for future and present healthcare providers. Don't be part of the problem, please. Be part of the solution. Take the class and get it done. Okay, let's talk about our special guests today. They've been waiting patiently inside the studio listening to me. I've been waving to them through the little window in my sound booth here. Hey, Angela. Hi, Miranda. How are you? They're both waving back and smiling. These two are always smiling. So on this episode, my special guests, as you heard, are the nieces. I said that right. The nieces of Nancy Cruzan, Angela Broadus. And Miranda Lewis are their names. Together, we're going to explore this topic. Who was Nancy Cruzan? Her parents, her sister, and who are her nieces? What you don't know is that Angela and her sister Miranda are famous to me and all students who have taken my death and dying class at the University of Toledo since 1995. I did some figuring this morning, and I think that's around 1,600 and 1,500 young adults. That's a lot of people. They're really famous. You see, I've shown this frontline documentary film about Nancy Cruzan, her parents, her sister, and these two young women, probably at least 50 times in my class. And I've watched it at least 50 times with my students. And so these two young ladies were featured as kids, really. They grew up over seven years that the film was taken, the documentary film on the Cruzans, and now beyond that. So the film first aired March twenty fourth, 1992. I came across it in 1995 in our library and started showing it in each section of my class. And the film is entitled, listen to this carefully now, the film is entitled The Death of Nancy Cruzan. So you kind of know that Nancy is dead. Nancy Cruzan really died January 11th, 1983, when she was just 25 years old. Unfortunately for her, her family, her friends, and really for all of us, she was kept in a hospital bed for nearly seven years, hooked up to a feeding tube in a persistent vegetative state. Like most 25-year-olds I know, Nancy had not done advanced care planning and had no advanced directives in place, so we really didn't know what she wanted. We relied on other people. You see, Nancy Cruzan, the person, died seven years before her outer shell, her body, was allowed to die. It's interesting, on her gravestone, this is inscribed on the gravestone. Departed January 11th, 1983. At peace... December 26, 1990. What happened to Nancy was this. When she was just 25 years old, she was in a single car accident coming home from work one night. It was only her car. She was thrown from her car face down in a ditch, and she was deprived of oxygen for at least 12 to 15 minutes. However, however, the EMTs did their job. They showed up, and they brought her back to life. There was a heartbeat. But, but her cerebral cortex of her brain, the seat of awareness and thought, was permanently damaged. Nancy would never again regain higher brain function. Nancy, in her per- persistent vegetative state, it was really permanent. She could no longer experience anything of the world around her except maybe pain. So it's determined to see their daughter at peace, her mom and dad and her sister and her nieces, undertook a prolonged legal struggle that led all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Believe it or not, it was the first right-to-die-with-dignity case that heard by the U.S. Supreme Court. So the legacy of the Nancy Cruzan case was to foster mechanisms to safeguard the interests of people who become incapacitated at the end of life. Nancy Cruzan and her entire family are really heroes to me. They're responsible for a Supreme Court decision that helped empower people, both competent and incompetent. And how do they empower these people? With choices at the end of life. As Joe Cruzan, Nancy's father, said, I think this is quite an accomplishment for a 25-year-old kid, and I'm damn proud of her. I say here, here, Joe. So let's meet Nancy's nieces and talk to them, shall we? I hope that you learn from the podcast. Well, hello everyone. Welcome to episode 14 of Grassroots Health. I'm Tim Jordan, I'm your host, and I'm here today with very, very special guest, Miranda Lewis and her older sister, Angie or Angela brought us. You don't know them. You probably don't even know their aunt. Their aunt's very famous. Her their aunt was Nancy Cruzan. And so I'm interviewing them today. And welcome to October, by the way, October 2023. We're here in the fall. It's uh, starting to turn. I'm looking outside, the leaves are turning. And by the way, I want to say thanks for Miranda and Angie for waving and smiling back at me as I as I uh, waved and smiled at them through the little window in the studio here. So, A- Miranda and Angela, how are you? Doing well,
1: thank you. I'm very good this morning. Yes. Thank good.
0: You. That's good to hear. Uh, since many of our listeners don't know you, they don't know your family, tell us about you. Introduce yourself, tell us about your family, any children, educational background, your careers, that kind of thing. We'll start with your older sister, Miranda. Age has benefits, and one of the benefits is seniority. Fair.
1: <laughs> She's used to that. It's kind of been uh-huh. that way our whole lives, uh-huh. hasn't it, Mer? Yeah. Well, I'm Angie Broaddus. I am in education. I live um, in Joplin, but I have worked and my whole career in Web City. Um, I graduated. We went to school here, grew up in this area, and then came back um, to give back to this community that gave so much um, to me, I worked for most of my career in the junior high level. I was teaching and then was a principal for a long time. Had the pleasure as we go through this today, we'll talk about um, our mom, and I got the pleasure of working with her at that same building um, for a long time. Now I am um, the director of virtual learning for Web City and DEI. It's been a change. This is my third year doing that. Um, But probably some of my most proud uh, moments are my two daughters. Uh, My oldest is Reagan Joyce, and she is beginning her first year in education. She is teaching at Wheaton, first grade, and I'm as proud as I can possibly be, and she just got engaged this summer. And then my youngest is Emerson Joe, and she's getting ready to start her freshman year as um, a high school student. And um, I just I couldn't be prouder of those two girls. I wonder
0: where you got those middle names. <laughs> <laughs> they
1: um, I knew I knew both of their middle names before I knew their first names. Yeah. Um, whatever name I chose to go with their middle name was had to go with um, Joe and Joyce.
0: So in so. case you don't know, Joe and Joyce were Angie's grandparents and Miranda's grandparents. So that's where they got the middle name. What about you, Miranda? What have you been doing? I've lost track, and now you're both grown up.
2: Yeah, we are. So uh, my husband Aaron and I also live in Joplin. Um, we are celebrating our 20th wedding anniversary at the end of this month. Um, we are very proud aunt and uncle. And we have two dogs, Radley and Scout. Um, I've worked at Mercy Hospital for 16 years. I started as the media coordinator, and I served in that role through the EF5 tornado that hit our town and devastated about a a third of the town and destroyed the hospital. Then I moved into foundation, and I currently serve as vice president of development, um, where I have the privilege of leading 10 of our foundations from southern Oklahoma up to St. Louis. Um, I went to college as an adult learner, so I received my Bachelor's of Communications and Master's in Organizational Leadership from Evangel University in Springfield, and I'm currently getting ready to start my second year into my doctoral program uh, for strategic leadership. Yes.
0: I will say yes to the doctoral program. As a, as a PhD myself, I know it's not easy, um, but kudos to you for doing it right? Well,
2: Angie's is, is ahead of me, so
1: she's she's getting ready. I'm mm-hmm. close, but...
0: You have a doctorate as well, Angie?
1: I'm working on it. I'm, I'm about to finish the, the most horrible part of it, <laughs> which is the dissertation. Oh,
0: I know. I've, I've been doing this now for 23 years, and many students get right up. They take all their classes, and then they, they drop out. Uh, not many, oh. but I've had five or six of my students just won't come back and finish because it's so terrible, so... That By is. the way, if you're a doctoral student listening, you can do it.
1: You, you, can, can, do it. you can do it. That's can. right. Yeah. Yeah.
0: You can yeah. finish it. Don't drop out, whatever you do. Yeah. So I must say, I feel like a relative of, of both of you I watched from a distance. I probably watched that frontline documentary film about your aunt Nancy Cruzan probably 100 times, over 100 times. Wow. Um, so I started showing it to my death and dying classes at UToledo around 2006. And we still talk about Nancy today. In fact, I still show the video uh, today. And by my estimate, there's at least 2,500 college students that have seen, uh, watched the video, know your family, know you. Um, Miranda, you had one little episode where you go like, you go like, I don't know. And, <laughs> you know, you, I think you said that must be the, the way of nature or something like that. And you go like this and they all laugh. They think it's so funny. They think you're so cute. <laughs> Um the two of you are, she is adorable. Yeah, you both are. very nice. Uh, when I started watching, you both were young kids. and by the time the film was over, I think it was six or seven years. you both were young women. So I decided to look for you when I was on vacation near Branson, Missouri. I don't know how far you, you are from Branson, but I found Miranda. And uh, so let's talk about Mercy Foundation. Is the Mercy system that you're in the same as the Mercy system that I was in?
2: No, it's not. Um, founded by the same by the same individual, Catherine McCauley. But yeah, there are several different systems across the U.S. But I'm I'm in yeah, the one. Catherine. Yeah, Midwest.
0: Okay. Yeah, Catherine McCauley is a very prominent figure. Mm-hmm. Uh, we we in the green room, so to speak. We talked about high schools. Uh, here in Toledo, Catherine McCauley High School was a girls Catholic school on the Anthony Wayne Trail and, and Toledo Christian School bought it and we moved into it and that's where, that's where the school will be forever. I think they, they built a new gym out front and so forth. So I want to say thanks to both of you for coming on my show. It's really an honor to meet you. Let's talk about your family, shall we? We shall. Let's talk about your grandparents, Joe and Joyce Cruzan. It all started with them, obviously. They had two girls, Nancy and your mom, Christy. They had three. Uh, I think the d- they had they three. They had three. They're, they
1: have three. Mm-hmm. Oh,
0: I didn't know that. I thought they only had two. They had three. So what were mm-hmm. Joe and Joyce like as people? Let's talk about them before Nancy's accident.
1: Do you want to
2: start with Grandpa?
0: Yeah, let's start yeah. with Grandpa. Yep. Um, so
2: as I was thinking about this, I started kind of jotting down some words to describe him tough, compassionate, articulate, um, unrelenting in the pursuit of what's right. Um, it, it was really in his DNA and he absolutely loved to tease, loved it. So, I mean, those are that kind of, Oh, he did. (laughs) He did. Yeah, Mm -hmm. he did.
0: Did he do pranks or just verbally tease?
2: Um, kind of both. He teased me more <laughs> He teased me more than he did Ange because Ange is a little more sensitive than I was.
1: So oh. he usually had to end up calling me to tell me he was sorry that he teased me oh. as yes. <laughs> much as he did. <laughs> Miranda well, could take it. I didn't always love it as much
0: as, uh, as he yeah. did. As, as so what, what kind of teasing <laughs> would he do, Miranda?
1: So uh, he,
2: one time, um, he called well he teased me because we made these things at 4H camp and it was a it was a little i think it was like a it had a little peg on it and i painted it white it was a it was a shamrock and it was supposed to be like a coat hook or some kind of a hook but I painted yeah. the whole stupid thing white instead of green. And he said, well, what is that, a cigarette sticking out of it? And I was like, well, no, it's not a cigarette sticking out of it. But he felt so badly about it, he did. That night, we had gone home, and he called me because he felt so badly about it. So he would tease me and tease me. And, you know, one time he he was on the carport floor, and he... We came up and he was, he was working on his motorcycle. So he's lying on the ground. And we roll up and uh, we were with grandma and we jumped out of the car. I thought he was dead on the ground. And I start mm. just coming apart and he jumps up and he laughs and laughs and laughs. <laughs> oh. But he, he loved to tease, loved it.
0: He did. He'd be a man that I would get along with. I love to tease as well. And
2: I'm the same. And I do the same thing to the
0: girls. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Angie, I know that people have different memories based on age and based on personality. What are your memories of your grandpa?
1: The memories of my grandpa for me are, well, for one, laughing at her or him and, and Miranda joking around and, and stuff. But a lot of times I remember the things like him coming home from work and his big hugs and his rough hands. And honestly, a lot of times I remember sitting around the table watching the evening news. And even now, I love to watch the national news, the the people aren't the same, but the sound and that just reminds me of all of us sitting down and he would get so mad at politics and want to talk about all the things that he saw on the news. But I, those are some of my fondest memories are the times that we sat together just talking about our day and um, being together around around the table. And,
0: so Grandpa Joe was tough. Uh-huh. He was gruff on the outside, but a teddy bear oh. on the inside. Absolutely. He fought for, for what was right.
2: The, mm. One of the other things about him is he always talked about that he was uneducated, that he was uneducated. But, my gosh, I, a more articulate man I don't know that I've ever met. And just his ability to reach people and connect with people is was astounding. And I, I
1: think his – go ahead, Angie. Go ahead. Well, what I was going to say is for someone who – didn't I mean, I think he thought he was uneducated because he didn't attend universities and, and, and go to school, but you wouldn't have met a more well-read person right. about a topic that meant so much to him. He was relentless in research and reading and asking questions and really trying to grasp and understand what it was because he was going to walk into a room and he was going to know what he was talking about. Just-
0: when, when, yeah, natural, that, curiosity. A natural
2: curiosity and natural curiosity that was, was always there, mm-hmm.
0: those traits really come through in the frontline documentary. You can, you can see he's kind of tough, he's kind of gruff, but yet, there are a lot of times he cries yeah. in that film, mm-hmm. and so he was a softy on the inside. And then, that's I think he had a soft spot for you two, that's for sure, his granddaughters. Um, let's talk about his wife, Joyce. We'll start with Miranda this time. What were what your memories of Joyce, Miranda, your grandma?
2: Oh, she was, she was as kind, always kind, as kind as they came. Um, stoic at times, quiet strength. She just, she didn't get rattled by anything. So she and grandpa were pretty opposite in that regard, um, but she had a good sense of humor, but just kind of out of nowhere. But there was, there was a steadiness and a calmness. And, you know, she would run her, her fingers through your hair. And just the sense of, of home and warmth and kindness is, is really what I remember of her always.
0: Angie, what about you?
1: Um. What I remember most are the, how even in the midst of the storm that we were all going through, that just like Marietta said, she felt like home. There was this calm comfort. Um, it, it She didn't get rattled. I'll even go so far as to say, as I've gone through things working in the junior high professionally and personally, um, that... That calmness that she had in moments of really hard times um, was just something that you, you don't, you don't see in a lot of people and you just, you felt calm around her because she was so calm and she also, um, well, she didn't always have a lot to say publicly um, she was very intelligent as well like she, she knew she knew what she was talking about she knew what was right and wrong and she knew um she was not judgmental of of people around her and again that shows in the kindness that she had for for anyone and everyone um but some of my most favorite memories have nothing to do with any of this it has to do with um sitting on the couch holding her hand and mm-hmm. the many times that we wrapped Christmas presents together. But the biggest thing is the that she taught me to sew and um, she quilted and she loved to craft and and, and do all of those things. And that, so that felt like that was the home that it felt like all the time. And um, those things still are, are with us now and, and have such a big impact on... And I would agree That's with really that. Good. She yes. remembering I did. she she took the time to
2: pass on traditions of her mom and her family. So she did. She taught both of us to quilt. Um, you know, she would have a quilt set up in her living room. We worked puzzles with her. She taught us to play marbles. That's a big thing uh-huh. in our family that, you know, my grandpa Joe made marble boards for us. He was't uh, he could build. He could build absolutely anything. He could build anything mm-hmm. out of sheet metal, out of wood. He was he was artistic in that way. He would never have mm-hmm. said so, but you know, that was that is something that she made sure that she instilled in us, taught us how to cook and how to bake pies and all that. Now, it was a little more lost on me because I wanted to be outside in the carport with grandpa <laughs> but and wanted to be in with grandma.
0: So and who's a better cook, you or Angie? Not me. <laughs> no. uh,
1: <laughs> Not me. <laughs> well, Miranda, how about this? Miranda, Miranda is definitely the better baker. of She's the a better two of baker. Us.
0: Okay. Yes, absolutely. So yes. she got some lessons. She learned something from mm-hmm. Grandma.
1: Something, yeah. Yeah, we did.
0: <laughs> What's your favorite but thing to e- bake, Miranda? Oh,
1: I, usually I do cakes. I,
2: cakes, yeah, I yeah, like cake decorating. now. Yeah.
0: It's funny. My wife, Pam, if she's listening, she only bakes one thing, one thing only. And that's carrot cake oh.
1: cupcakes. Oh.
0: And she's she's doesn't even use a recipe anymore. I, I bought her a Betty Crocker cookbook when we got married, that yellow, mm-hmm. really thick cookbook, mm-hmm. you know. And she doesn't even use that anymore. She's made it so many times, and they're very famous. We've been to probably three or four restaurants, and the manager comes out, and he says... Hey, would you bake those for our our store here? Wow. Wow. No? So anyway, I thought I'd I'd talk about baking. So (laughs) let me ask you a personal question. Are each of you more like Joe, your grandpa? Or are you more like Joyce, the stoic one?
1: Easy. I... Yeah, it's I as soon as I think we both when we we independently read your questions um and that was absolutely we without a doubt I am I am Joyce. And I am You're Joe.
2: Joyce. 100%. That's interesting. Yes. And mom was mm-hmm. mom was probably a an amalgamation of both of them but definitely more cut from the Joe cloth.
1: So That's mm-hmm. interesting. Yeah. I
0: would agree. yeah. What was uh, Grandma Joyce's maiden name? Harold. Okay, because I know there's a lot of Cruzans still. When I looked in the phone I look in the directory, there's a lot of Mm Cruzans, and so I don't know—is Cruzan European, Eastern European?
1: Oh gosh, was it French? There, yeah, there's French, French?
2: and yeah, Uh there's a okay. There's a book. One of our aunts, one of the Cruzans, my one of my grandpa's aunts did
1: a whole
0: genealogy on it but yeah okay yeah it's good to know your roots good to know where you come from so absolutely make sure you keep that up for your kids um let's talk about your mom your mom was one of three Mm -hmm. her her name was christy Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. uh you you as your daughters as her daughters you obviously have really good memories of your mom what was she like what was her strong personality traits
2: You want to start? Well, first and foremost, um, she was a caregiver, always, Um, Mm. no matter where she was, whether she was at work, whether she was at home, um, loyal, absolutely loyal, mostly to family, but she was an incredible friend. She was compassionate, um, wise beyond her years. And I think a lot of it had to do with the experiences that she had. Because if you think about it, she was 27 when life happened to her. Um,
0: she was young. Mm-hmm. Yeah, she, she was. was pretty young. Mm-hmm. She
2: was. Um, generous. And she was very well known for her eyes and her smile. Everybody talks about the and eyes. Yep. Yeah.
0: yeah. Well, and
1: I'll add to that. She worked with me at the, the junior high and made lots of friends. So
0: was she the, a teacher?
1: She started as a paraprofessional, so she was an aide in a classroom. And then when I became the principal, um, we had a teacher leave, and mom had been doing it for so long. We talked about her working on a degree and teaching at the same time, and she decided that she wanted to. So oh. she moved her way into—she taught special education. Very good. Um, and so that that caregiving and that compassion and that wise beyond her years translated amazingly well into education, and she made such a significant impact. Even today, and at random times, I'll get um, texts or emails of pictures that some of the teachers from the school that I worked will send me of notes that she had maybe left in a book, or many times at Christmas or holidays, she would make um, ornaments or little signs, and they'll send me pictures of the things that she brought to school to, um, and just as reminders of her and of her time there. She
2: was incredibly.
0: Yeah, I, one of the. Go ahead, Well, She was
2: incredibly sentimental, um, and again, I think that's a byproduct of life, right? I mean, she she really taught us. She herself started soaking in every moment. But not in a not in a morbid way, but she always knew there will come a point in time when what you have are pictures and notes mm-hmm. and memories yeah. and she was incredibly intentional about making the moments special about upholding tradition and about teaching us and reminding us of our history there was one year she <laughs> she made a you know, the little picture albums. It was just a small picture album. And she wrote on note cards, hand wrote on note cards, our lineage, um, family stories of different family members. And she said, these are the things that sometimes you forget in the retelling. And if you don't write them down, then you start thinking later, gosh, what was it that mom said? What about that one mm-hmm. cousin? Or And she preserved all of that for us. Not only did she do that, but all of her sayings.
1: She was known for her sayings, and she wrote. I I was going to say, that's the that's actually what I thought you were going to mention. I also have another. We have another little book that said things your mama says, Mm -hmm. and in fact, I just I have it in a drawer and I pulled it out the other day and just to open it and and feel that moment. I mean, you can you can go back to those moments by having that um, in your hand and and she was I. I speak um, some about this to students in Web City. and I think not just the loss of her sister, but right before that she went through a divorce and um, her grandma passed away, and there was um, one of her her youngest sister had a stillborn baby. And all of that happened. Right before the loss of her sister. And I think all of those things had such an impact on how she looked at life going forward, how mm-hmm. precious those moments were. And then it, it was it was just very much ingrained in who she was in everything that she did, I and think. And then it became ingrained in us. Absolutely. Absolutely. I will say,
0: Miranda, I think you sound like your mom. You, I, I hear your mom's voice in your voice. And so Angie, I have a question for you. How many years did your mom work at the school with you?
1: Oh my gosh. I think it was I think it was fifteen. It's good. I'm not for sure. I, I can't remember for sure. It was it was a it was a lot longer than I actually realized that it was. Because I remember it wasn't too long. I was still teaching and she was working as a paraprofessional and I had Reagan who was really young and I would be sitting in my classroom at the end of the day and she would come over and she'd say, oh, come on, Annie, it's time to go home. And I'd say, Mom, I have to go home to my second job, which is my daughter at home. I need just five minutes in my classroom where it's completely yeah. quiet before I go home today. And so yeah, it, it, was, not it was quite a long time. To... <laughs> I think I've told her that story, too. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, I see the Web City shirt and the Cardinals on your, on mm-hmm. your shirt. And uh, so I appreciate you being here, taking time out of the, of the school day to be here. I know we're getting ready to start, too, at the University of Toledo. So your mom developed ovarian cancer. Um, what were some of the initial symptoms that she had?
2: So she started, she was having some pain in her back and a, a little bit of loss of mobility in her leg just inability to raise it all the way up. And then she was having some trouble with her lymph nodes, some swollen lymph nodes in her neck. Those were the initial symptoms.
0: So for our listeners, um, here's what happens. I, I know we had a professor who in our department had this type of cancer and she had an enlarged stomach and, um, that's how she, that kind of tipped her off. Something was wrong and wasn't going down. So your mom went to an oncologist, mm-hmm. as all do. They do some scans. They do an exam. They do some blood tests, possibly a biopsy. Um, and what did the oncologist say after all this diagnostic workup? Let's go to Angie. What did, what did the oncologist say after this?
1: Well, um, and and I'll say so, but I, I know Miranda can add to it a lot more. She's definitely... Um, much more detailed in her memory of all of the the the, the pieces, but it was stage four um, yeah. cancer that she had. Um, and I know at that point, I, and Miranda, maybe you can chime in a little bit. But I know the first plan was to to do some uh, surgery, and it had spread to the lymph nodes as well. Um, and in they were neck. going to um, and mm-hmm. and on her aorta down, down between some between the next kidneys. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Okay. No, and and so the the where they were going to start was with um, surgery, and then after that, do um, chemotherapy. Do you want to add to that, Miranda?
2: No, that. Go ahead, Miranda. No, I. It was um, actually I think that went the other way around. I think they had to do the chemo first. Was it chemo first? Either way, it. it thought, yeah, it was she did not have to do radiation but they did yeah they, no you're right Ian it was it was they did the surgery first I thought they, did, did, they the... did the debulking first mm-hmm. yep and then they did chemo mm-hmm. and what's interesting about it is that so ovarian cancer especially stage 4 is you know their the survival rate the 5 year survival rate is, is fairly low and they they did a platinum based chemo which is a really aggressive treatment and at one point, one of her providers said she was, you know, "quote unquote," cured. Which, mm. you know, there's there's debate over whether or not you actually use that term, and not not disparaging the the provider, um, but it does provide kind of a, a false sense of hope and um, or security, maybe not hope, but then. She was good for several months, and then in February of, it was January um, of 2015, she started having some symptoms, neurologic symptoms, and, you know, uh, not able to hang on to change, dropping things, and she, she ran over a curb when she was driving, which was so unusual for her, and that sent her to her primary care physician. Um They were thinking that they were latent chemo side effects, but it turned out it was frontal lobe brain tumors.
0: Yeah, for our listeners' sake, uh, let's talk about the stages. um, The stages of ovarian cancer, really many cancers, range from one to four. And one, it's usually Roman numerals, like number one, number two. So lowest stage, one indicates that the cancer is confined Just to the ovaries. Two, a little farther, three, a little farther, and four, the cancer spread to distant areas of the body, as we talked about lymph nodes in the neck and in the abdomen. Um, And she was at stage four. And as I recall from what I've read, uh, eventually the brain, eventually the cancer spread to your mom's brain. And as you said, she had some problems there neurologically. Um, When did she decide to enroll in hospice?
2: So at first she really went back and forth about whether or not to try some radiation therapy, the tumors, there were two of them, pretty significant in size. Um, it was not going to be curative. It was just going to be to manage symptoms for a longer period of time and improve quality of life. And she actually had decided that she would do that. We went and visited with a radiation oncologist. She decided that's what she would do. And it was, It was, I mean, this all happened within the span of about a week. And so she went and spoke to her primary care physician. I came over that afternoon after she had seen her primary care doc, who was wonderful to her. All of her providers were amazing. Um, And after she got home from that doctor's appointment, she said, I think I'm going to do hospice. And I I remember, I mean, I was, I was devastated, absolutely in tears. And I said, no, no, even though this is what we've grown up with. Right. I mean, we know all of the, Mm. we know what her wishes were, but there's still this moment. You're still her kid. It's still Mm. your mama. And like, no, I I don't want my
0: mom to be, I don't want to lose my mom. Right.
2: right. But she said, you know, at the end of the day, I want to enjoy the time that I have. I knew I knew all of the reasons why, but it's just hard to hear. And it was, it was within the next couple of days. Now, I worked here, so, you know, I, I knew the people and kind of knew the process, and that did make it somewhat easier. But that it, was, it was a very definite just this day we're doing radiation therapy, this day we're not, and then it's full-on hospice, which was the right decision to make.
0: Yeah, my sister is a hospice administrator. I teach death and dying. Uh, I don't know how we ended up being at the end of life, but you know we certainly support hospice. I've interviewed uh, many hospice nurses. I have a, a podcast with hospice nurse Penny, who's probably the premier hospice nurse in all of the United States. So um, I think according to my research, your mom died about six months after being in hospice, and she was 59, mm-hmm. and that's, that's pretty young. And I have to say that she's a hero to me. Um, she should be a hero to all of us because she knew what she wanted, and she stuck by that. And so let's talk about sticking by it and, and knowing what she wanted. She probably had advanced care planning. She probably talked with both of you about what she wanted. Right, Angie?
1: yes. And I, I want to add something that that we had, we haven't really talked about and I, I don't know how much um, maybe you know, but uh, her mom, G- Joyce, died of lymphoma and had cancer and also made the decision um, at the time that. to not accept at least she didn't want to go through I don't think she did any chemotherapy or anything like that. She just, once she found out that she had cancer, um, she had been sick a lot of her life um, Anyway, she'd had lupus and she decided that she, it was, she didn't want any more medical help. She just wanted to come home and be with her family um, and, and hospice was involved um, at, for her as well. So there's been a, a model as well in our family of, of understanding, you, you have this understanding Based on all of our experiences of death and dying, but then we live those experiences and have lived those experiences as well with, with our grandma and then and then with mom as well. And um, those are hard decisions. No matter how much you've lived them your whole life, they're still gut wrenching and challenging when you're in the middle of it, and involve a lot of really hard conversations about what is best and and how to manage what. What may be coming, but I wanted to add that part too because yeah, we thank talking, you. I didn't,
0: I didn't know that. Um, so tell me what you both have learned about hospice. What do you think of hospice? Well,
1: it's go ahead, Anne. It's a godsend. It it the the hospice nurse that we had was um, such a help to us and um, was there every step of the way um, in the the hardest of moments the The most challenging um, of moments to help us through um, knowing how and and what to do and and sometimes even just the hug and the love that you need to to get through.
0: Miranda,
2: One of the best things about Linda, our hospice nurse. Um, I mean she was with us for six months. And a lot of times people don't seek hospice care as early as they could or sometimes should and because it it is such a feels like such a final step um that they miss out on the benefit of it but i remember she would tell us every family goes through these things right i mean there are things that we're not equipped to be caregivers that that's not that's not my role at in healthcare. there's a reason i'm in fundraising and not in caregiving, right? But that you take care of your loved one. And she said, no matter what, you're going to have challenges. Uh, you're going to have disagreements and stressful moments that any family who maybe under ordinary circumstances wouldn't. And you would think of all the years and of all the things that have happened in our family, we would, we would know how to, to navigate this road. But it's different for every person. And I would say one of the things that I learned most about this journey with mom was no matter what you know and no matter what you say you want and that you know with absolute certainty she said she would never ever do chemo didn't she and never she would never mm-hmm. do chemo oh, yeah. but when you're 57 and you've got young grandkids and you know you're you're getting your master's degree and you've got so much life ahead of you then you start to rethink like okay well maybe. So I think with hospice and just with end-of-life care, no matter what, you have to be flexible and having that healthcare proxy and having those conversations throughout, not just one time, you know, 20 years back, life changes, and your life changes, your circumstances change, your family changes, and so it's, it's an ongoing conversation, and hospice really helped us navigate through some of the most difficult parts of that journey. Like, at the very mm-hmm. end, we, we moved her to the hospital the last two days of life, just because it became unmanageable to, to turn her, I mean, the, the physical aspect of it, and we had the social worker and our, our hospice nurse there to help us with that journey, understanding when to do the pain pump. Can I tell a funny story about mom?
0: Yeah, please do. So
2: the the day that, that she decided that she wanted to do hospice, I mean, they were there like the next day, Linda walks into the house and she's, she was old. Now, Linda's the Linda's nurse, the right? Linda's nurse. the hospice mm-hmm. Nurse. Mm-hmm. Yep. So yes. we're all just <laughs> pins and needles, kind of a nervous wreck. And, and Linda walks in and she was the exact right person to be with us. So she was a little bit older than mom. I don't know how much older and, but you know, she was, she was tough. So she walked in the house, mm-hmm. all of us are standing very awkwardly. And
0: she yes, was, yeah, it
2: was, it was really <laughs> weird. So then we all are seated and my mom is still standing. And she says, let me just tell you. So she, she's given this hospice nurse, the what for? She says, let me wow. just tell you, I know the value of hospice. And I know why you're here. I know you're here not just to take care of me, but to take care of my family. And I also know that when the time comes that I don't want to be aware and that I have lost my sense of dignity or, you know, whatever the calculus was for, okay, I'm I'm through with this, that you can give me some comfort care that will allow me to – you know, to die in dignity essentially. I mean she just gave her the what for and Linda's like, Okay, all right, here we go. <laughs> and they were they were fast friends and I mean it was Yeah. They were. And and it was it, it was funny at the time but also just surreal. But I thought, God, if every single person who is facing end of life care could approach it in that way, man, it, it would be a totally different experience I think for some people.
0: It would be. And, you know, veteran hospice nurses and hospice administrators, like my sister, they'll tell you that, you know, people are admitted to hospice, they come in, and, and my sister Debbie will say, like, you've, you've got your advanced directives done, right? And they look at each other, they go, uh, very sheepishly. And they know what's an advanced directive? Mm-hmm. They don't even know. Mm-hmm. So I, I take it that you're a fan of advanced care planning, both of you, is that right? Mm hmm. And, and you're right, it does change with time, it does change with stage of life, it does change with circumstances, and you should revisit it. You should revisit your advanced directives, and I'm thinking that maybe Nancy, we're going to talk about her next, maybe she didn't have advanced directives. Right. No one knew, what, and no one knew what she wanted because she had never written it down. So if you're just tuning re- in, I'm talking with the, nan- the nieces of Nancy Cruzan, Miranda Lewis, and Angela Broadus, and we're getting to know them, their family, some of the health struggles that they face, their families face. If you're not familiar with Nancy Cruzan, her case was the very first case ever heard by the U.S. Supreme Court on the right to die, and the case was argued December 6, 1989. It was decided on June 25, 1990. And in a 5-4 decision, the U.S. Supreme Court affirmed what the earlier ruling of the Supreme Court of Missouri was, that it was acceptable to require clear and convincing evidence of a patient's wishes for removal of life support. Remember, this was back in the late 80s and early 90s. Things have changed a lot. So after the U.S. Supreme Court decision, I think I remember a friend of Nancy came forward with that clear and convincing evidence. Is that right? What happened there? And I'll turn to you guys and let you let you tell me what happened.
1: So that that is what happened. We went um, because of the national publicity that came along with it. I think there were... I thought there were actually two people that came forward um, that said, yes, we knew Nancy um, in a a different sense. And she said to us, and it was because of the jobs that she had. She had seen people in different conditions. um, And she said, if I can't be who I am, I don't want to be here anymore. And so they were able to... That's what
0: Nancy said.
1: That's what Nancy said. And then the friends came forward and told um, our grandparents and our attorney that, which was... um, the reason that we could go back and have another um, probate court hearing, uh, maybe it's not probate court, but okay. at circuit. the back of judge, yeah, circuit, yes, yeah, thank you, circuit court, um, and so we opened um, that second trial, and that one, the first one, Miranda and I didn't attend, but the second one we were able to attend,
0: and, and I, think I think even that at was, that point, was that the Judge state- Teal, mm-hmm. right?
1: It yes. was. Mm-hmm. And I think even at that point, the state withdrew um, from the case and it was just her guardian ad litem and, and our our family. So um, but yeah, that's it was because of the conversation. And, and you ask a question earlier, but Nancy, uh, I remember Grandpa talking about the fact that the. The Quinlan case and some of the cases about having a living will had not even happened when before Nancy had her her car accident. So it was really only the conversations that she had had with her family and the people that she worked with that led us to know what it was that this young lady would would want exactly um, right. in the in a situation where she couldn't speak for herself anymore.
0: So one one of the significant outcomes of Nancy's case was the development of advanced care directive documents. And and so now we have, we can fill out living wills, we can do advance, we can tell in advance who's gonna speak for us, a durable power of attorney for care. You know, we can say those things, but back then maybe maybe they didn't, didn't have those things. So I wanna take, uh, take a few minutes and talk about your Aunt Nancy, okay? Um, her sister Christy, your mom, and her parents didn't ask for what happened to them they didn't deserve what happened to them uh, they didn't want what happened to them joe made that very clear in the in the documentary that's for sure they did I, I, he said i'd rather you know i'd rather not be me why why is it me but you know that's what life life happens sometimes so for our listeners let me tell you what happened i think it was July 11th, 1983, Nancy was 25 years old. She's only 25. She was born a couple years earlier than me. She was born July 20th, 1957. By the way, I think I think her tombstone has three dates on it, mm-hmm. right? It
1: does.
0: Most dates have born and dead. What does Nancy say?
1: It says the year she was born, the year that she left For us, which was mm-hmm. the day of her uh, departed, the day of her wreck, and then um,
0: the day that she was at peace. Yeah, isn't that interesting? It also it?
1: has. I, I don't know. Have you seen the the other part of of um, what's there? Is a, a cartoon that was sent to our family when she when she died. Um, it was an editorial, and it's um, like a is it an EKG machine that where it uh, shows your heartbeat, and it in that. It trails off but it it says thank you first in that and then trails off to a flat line
0: yeah so part of it in, in many ways I mean we we owe your family a lot um, so let's talk about the details I think she was coming home from work it was around Carthage Missouri um, your your grandpa was on the frontline documentary and he showed where she landed she was thrown from her vehicle landed face down it was a single car accident. No other car was involved, just hers. Uh, She landed in a kind of a water-filled, muddy ditch area. Her brain had been without oxygen for 14 minutes. Paramedics then came. They didn't find any breathing, any heart rate, any blood pressure, but they resuscitated her. They did their Mm -hmm. job, right? That's what paramedics do. After three weeks, she was in a coma. Um, She was diagnosed in by physicians as being in a persistent vegetative state, a PVS state, persistent vegetative state, and to keep her alive, they went to your grandma and grandpa and said, "Hey, we have to, we have to put a feeding tube in her to give her a chance." And what parent would say no to that? I mean, they didn't right. know at the time, and so they said yes. So, let me read you according to this textbook I found in neurology: a persistent vegetative state or PVS state describes the term or describes the condition of, of a patient with severe brain damage. Nancy had severe brain damage. I remember your mom saying in the film that she begged Nancy, like squeeze my hand for once or wiggle your toes or do anything, I'll give you my car, your mom said. Mm-hmm. It. Nancy could never respond. So person has severe brain damage. Patients with PVS have no cerebral cortical function. They're unconscious, they're unaware, but they can do regular sleep patterns. They can go sleep. They can look at you. They can track you across the room. And that's what's kind of weird. Even your attorney or Nancy's attorney, Bill Colby, said it's kind of weird, like, seeing her and her eyes are open and, you know, she could track me. He said he, it's the first time he would ever seen someone like that in, in the video. So the brainstem of the patient, which is back here in the nape of the neck, um, I know we're on video, so it's the nape of the neck is still alive. The brain stem is still alive. So blood pressure is okay. Homeostasis is still okay. The heartbeat is okay. The person's not on a breathing tube. There's, everything is fine except no brain activity. Um, so after five years of no improvement like that, just laying there in a persistent vegetative state, your grandparents said Nancy wouldn't want to live like that. And as I recall, they went to the the nursing home or the extended care facility where she was staying, and they asked to have the feeding tube removed and let Nancy die with dignity. And the the guy said, "No, we can't do that. Uh, we can't do that without a court order." So I think your aunt Nancy and a court
1: order from a high court. Yeah, it wasn't from just the high a court, court order; it was a yeah.
0: So let me ask you, like most twenty five year olds that I teach, they don't even think about advanced directives. They don't even think they think they're invincible, they're gonna live forever. They don't they don't think about smoking, they don't think about drinking. They they just are and I'm not saying Nancy was a smoker or drinker, but am I correct that there's no living will, no healthcare proxy, no advanced directives? Correct. Yeah. None of that. So correct. what would you both say to people who are listening Including my students. Many I, I will probably require this as an extra credit assignment. But you know, there's gonna be a lot of people listening to this all over the world. And many haven't done advanced care directives. Most Americans, I think it's by thirty-four or thirty-five percent of American adults have done it. What would you say to those people?
1: I would say it's the kindest, most loving thing that you can do for your family is to have a conversation about what it is that you want if you can't make decisions for yourself. Documents help in those circumstances, but definitely having those conversations about um, what the end of your life looks like and what your wishes are helps your family to make better decisions for you and helps them be at peace about about what you would want.
0: Ryan, any comment about advanced directives, advanced care planning?
1: To be quite
2: honest with you, I struggled with it for a long time, for a long time. And this is my family. And I really had a hard time with it because I, there was something about it that I thought, if I do this, that means I'm going to die, which you
0: is, yourself. yeah,
2: which is, it's, it's nonsense, but it's the, it's the brain of a 20 something year old. Right. I mean, and so I struggled with that myself. So I definitely recognize and and can empathize with that. But like Ange said, you know, we've been around this for our whole lives and we've always had the conversation. So just even allowing yourself to think about, would I want to be completely paralyzed and, you know, would I want this, would I want that, what would you want, and just talk to somebody. But it's also, it seems daunting, like, like a will. A will seems really daunting. It's not that complicated. Signing an advance directive is not that complicated. That the whole point of the Patient Self-Determination Act is, is this is a right that we have to direct our own healthcare and I every every person should take advantage of it no matter what your age.
0: And we should and say, say it's walk. free, right? Right. All you, is. Need is, you, know, you need is you. need two witnesses that know you well. Mm-hmm. That can't be related to you by blood or marriage. It's free. Or, if you want to get it notarized, you can. That maybe costs ten or twelve dollars. I think. Um, lawyer friends tell me that things that are notarized stand up better in court if they're challenged. I don't know who would challenge your advance directives, but, you know, it's possible. Uh, well there but, are
1: cases where families disagree about what it is that you would have right. wanted yeah. and that's when those things come into to play and you can get a, a copy of it a lot of times if you're admitted or go to the hospital or go to the doctor you can talk to them about it as well and get a well, copy. It's yeah, remember it be, that's the new, that's yeah. what they
2: ask you. That's the that's, whole point of the Patient Self-Determination Act is when you go to a health yeah. facility they ask you do you have an advanced health care directive would you like a yes. yeah. So and they, they make it easy. It's, it really is. It's more simple than what I think people think.
0: Yeah, I remember doing some focus groups as part of a national study I did on this. And we were at a church, and the majority of people said, well, I just don't have the money to hire an attorney. I, right. I, I don't have the money to hire a lawyer. You don't have to hire anybody, right? Right? right. It's free. No. So you've been listening to Grassroots Health podcast." And during this episode, I've been interviewing Miranda Lewis and Angela Broadis. They're the daughters of Christy Cruzan White, and the granddaughters of Joe and Joyce Cruzan, and the nieces of Nancy Cruzan. So let me ask you this: how has the loss, grief, mourning that comes from you've had a lot of deaths in your family. Deaths of your grandparents, your mom, your aunt. How's it? How's it changed each of you? What have you learned from it? Who'd like to go first?
1: You may go first.
0: Yeah, Angie.
1: All right. Um, I think it embeds in you the the traditions that we talked earlier about in this podcast about um, all the things that our grandparents and um, mom. to us and taught us it makes them important in remembering those that are not with us um, and helps us teach the girls um, those same traditions so they have that they can even feel that love from um, our grandparents and from their Mimi that's gone now Um, and how it's changed me and I think the way I've always looked at it when I interviewed for my very first teaching job, uh, one of the questions, and it, it actually struck me as a really hard question um, because I had a hard time getting through it. And they said, "Why do you want to? Why do you want to go into education?" And I gave kind of a traditional answer, which is that I want to make a difference. But the reason I wanted to make a difference is because I watched. Our family make a difference in people's lives. So many of the letters and the postcards and the calls that grandma and grandpa got were about how telling the story and talking about it changed their life. And mm-hmm. even probably in the last two years, I've had people in our community that have dealt with death and dying or had to make decisions said, I thank you so much for what your family did, because having those conversations helped us mm-hmm. have conversations. And um so when I answered that question, why do you want to go into education, I said I want to make a difference. But I wanted to make a difference because that's what I watched growing up. And so I wanted to I wanted to take all of that heartache and the hard things that had happened and in the same respect that grandma and grandpa tried to make and mom tried to make our lives normal and okay – um, in the midst of something really hard, I wanted to do the same thing. I want to take the grief and the heartache and the hard times and make it um, worth it by making a difference in, in just a little bit different way than, than they did. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's, that's what I, I try to do professionally and um, personally.
0: Can I move my grandkids to Missouri and put them in your school? <laughs> Brian, come on. <laughs> I would love that. Miranda, what have you learned from loss, grief, mourning? Tell me what you've learned.
2: So this is where, this is where Ange and I are, are pretty different. Um, We we're 14 months apart in age. So we experienced the same things at the same times. Um, I was the quintessential baby. I was the baby and Ange was always kind of the mother hen and, um, when, when mom got sick, I had the advantage of having a more flexible schedule, so I would come to work at 5 in the morning and then leave at 12 or 1, and then I was there the rest of the day. Angie didn't have the benefit of being able to get away from school the same way that I did, so I was kind of thrust into a, into a different caregiving role. That I had never been in, not, and I'm not saying that Ange wasn't there. She was. It was just, it was just a, a, an everyday thing and something I was not used to to dealing with. Um, it allowed Mom and I to have some conversations. Like she told me, because I asked her, I said, "What do we do at Christmas? What do we do at Thanksgiving?" I mean, we're so steeped in tradition in our family, couldn't possibly imagine what it would look like with her not there, and she gave me, both of us, some great advice. She said, don't do it here. Start something different. I mean, she just, even, even at the end, she was helping us to figure out what would happen later. She said to me one time, she said, there will come a point that, sorry.
0: It's okay. You can cry. I cry all the time, and I teach class.
2: That... <laughs> You will be so mad at the world because they move on and you're yeah. going to be without your mama. And she was right. I mean, that's the, her wisdom. It, it's, I carry it with me, but I would say with grief and loss and mourning, it's so much different for Angie and me um, because, again, I'm cut from the Joe and Christy cloth very much and hold on to some of the some of the sorrow a little more deeply and have a more difficult time kind of turning loose of it. Um, But all of that said, it has created a different kind of strength and intentionality and appreciation for who we are, what we are, how we are that I don't know that I ever really appreciated as much, as much as we've gone through. I think the end of it with my mom was, was pivotal for me as, as a person, as a human being, and as a, as a matter of compassion and empathy for people because her brain tumors obviously changed who she was and how she was, and we had to adapt. I had to think about, okay, this is what she was and who she was and what she wanted a year ago. That's not who is sitting in front of me right now. So do I honor who she was then or do I honor who she is now and what she wants now? And that was an incredibly difficult kind of ethical dilemma. And, you know, it, it just that whole journey changed my perspective on a lot of things.
0: So let me ask you, what did you do? Did you honor who she was? or who she was now? I did
2: both. I did both. Both? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I mean, there were, um, you know, her appearance changed a lot, and obviously frontal lobe tumors really impact your ability to, to reason and things like that. And so I would, again, I mean, I was able to take her places during the day. She always loved to go to Dollar General for some reason. But, you know, she would sometimes have... Um, episodes when she was out she would get in a panic and things like that and so I I would sometimes she would the the things that she would wear wouldn't be what she would normally wear but it's how she felt good and felt beautiful and, and all of those things in that moment that's who I honored and protected her with everything that I had So and we all did it wasn't just me we all did but it was I mean it was kind of difficult like you know, a year ago would she would she wear this or would she say these things. It didn't matter. That's what gave her joy in that moment and that's who we had to honor. The the more difficult aspects of it were her care and how do we honor her care and at what point do we help her decide you need to do a pain pump and things like that that we knew ultimately would lead to the end. So so I would say bottom line is grief and loss and mourning is different for every single person and every experience is different. And I would say, talk to somebody, talk to somebody. It's, it's okay. Almost eight years later to feel the way that you feel.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Talk to somebody, even if it's your bartender or barber or, you know, Mm -hmm. I talk to my person that cuts my hair all the time. She laughs about it. I said, you're not going to tell anybody. And, so I, I, I share those burdens with her. Mm-hmm. So thank you, Miranda and Angela, for coming on my show today. I really appreciate appreciate both of you so much. Uh, you've been listening to Miranda Lewis and Angie Broadus. They're the nieces of Nancy Cruzan. Next month, you'll want to listen to our podcast. It will be on the first Monday of November. I think it's November 6th. We'll be talking to two veteran hospice nurses. And we'll be talking about the importance of advanced care planning, what they've seen with families, how they would recommend we do it. So any last words? I, I always leave my guests with the last words to the audience. Any last words you want to tell them? Angie?
1: Spend as much time with your family and together and honor those traditions because they are what you'll have going forward.
0: Yeah, good advice. Brandon, any advice for my listeners?
2: I, I would say something similar. Honor each other, appreciate each other, love each other. And just a huge thanks to you and your listeners as
1: well for helping yes. to honor our family. Thank you.
0: I well, thank agree. you thanks for coming for... on the show. It was my honor, really. I, I hope along with the video that this will shed more, even more light. And I know it has on your family. So, so we'll see you in November. Remember what the Dalai Lama said be kind whenever it's possible, and it's always possible. We'll see you. Take care.